This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. Once again this week, we have a two-part episode for you. You are currently listening to the first part of episode 1.34, Parting Shots. And we're your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan, and I kind of can't believe we got here. And I'm Nina, surprisingly satisfied with the end of this series, if only because I know there are more series to come. (laughs) There is no end to Gundam in your future. It is your fate. It is your unmei. As a quick heads up, I have a bit of a head and throat cold this week. Uh, First time for the podcast for one of us to be sick while recording. So if my voice sounds a little weird, there you have it. Au contraire. Because, loyal listeners, there was a time when we were actually one episode ahead and we had a spare one ready in case something happened. And then I got sick and spent three days sleeping. Oh, I remember that. (laughs) That was scary. We've never gotten ahead since then. (laughs) This is the first time one of us has gotten sick and it has affected our voices. So Truth. Hopefully, you still enjoy us. And when I get sick next week... (laughs) Don't don't do it. That's mean. Tapping on wood. (laughs) Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 82 patrons. Woo! Thank you all. And special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Edward D., Brian W., J. Braden M., Jonathan J., Andrew H., and Jamie R., If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord and bonus content, you can do so at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. Another way to support the podcast is to buy us one of the items from our wish list. (laughs) As we prepare to start Mobile Suit Gundam Zeta, there are a lot of reference books, magazines, and other research materials that we wish we had access to. The link to the wish list is at the bottom of our homepage, GundamPodcast.com. And thank you all so much for your continuing support. This week, I would like to send a special thank you out to many of our fans on Twitter who have been supporting us, chatting with us, and sharing us with their friends and followers. So special thanks to at AMAC1984, at Zillion29, at Elon Muscat, at Nighty Night Sky, and extra special thanks to at Michael Tool for helping us spread the good word about balls, at CDY for sending us our very, very first podcast fan art, to Tex Marquise for sharing the podcast with all of her followers, and to Anime Stairs. We are thrilled to be your favorite podcast. Last week, as the Federation fleet departed Solomon to begin Operation Star One, the capture of Abawaku, and the invasion of Side Three, Shar and Lala joined Kaecilia Zabi's small fleet bound for the final defense line. Seizing an opportunity to whittle away at the Federation's vast fleet, they attacked a Federation squadron, only to be met by the White Base. 
As Amuro and Lala dueled, their burgeoning new type powers created a psychic connection, and for a brief moment, the two young people seemed to understand each other. But Shar's ill-timed arrival and Lala's devotion to the Red Comet led to tragedy, when Lala threw herself between Shar and the Beam Saber. And meanwhile, Girinzabi orders Zeon's nightmarish solar ray weapon to fire. This week we are discussing episodes 42 and 43, Space Fortress Abawaku and Escape, or in the Japanese, Uchu Yosai Abawaku and Dashutsu. Conveniently for us, those are pretty much perfect literal translations. Uchu Yosai means Space Fortress, and Dashutsu means Escape. And now, the recap. The solar ray tears through the fleet near Geldorva, including Federation High Command, General Revel, and Sovereign Degwin. Ships, mobile suits, and people are obliterated in a blinding field of light. The crew of the White Base are near enough to see it happen, and with his new senses and overwhelmed Amuro can only say, not all of them are gone, but... As they prepare to defend Abawaku, Girin gives a speech to his own forces, emphasizing the righteousness of the Zeon cause. The Federation is severely weakened, he tells his army, mere debris, and it is the destiny of the superior race of Zeon to defeat them and to safeguard humanity's survival. Thrown into a state of chaos, the Federation fleet scrambles to reorganize their forces. Once organized, they prepare to attack, and it is clear that they have been severely weakened. Amuro encourages everyone. The fortress may seem strong, but it has weaknesses, and they will succeed. When Bright asks him if this is new type intuition, Amuro says yes. Before leaving the bridge, Amuro says goodbye to Fra. They encourage each other, and she reminds him not to do anything crazy. Hayato also goes to speak to Fra, and it is clear, from his body language and the gossip of the orphans, that he has feelings for her. On their way to level 1 battle stations, Amuro, Kai, and Sela talk. Kai asks if what Amuro said on the bridge is true, and Amuro admits that it was a lie. Sela stands up for him. If Amuro hadn't lied, the crew could have panicked. The battle has begun in earnest. The sheer number of vessels and mobile suits is staggering, and missiles and beam weapons fire in all directions. Girin watches it all from the command center of Abawaku, surprised by the ferocity of the Federation after losing the core of their forces. Kaecilia arrives to join him. Accompanying her, Char laments that all of the new Gelgooks have already been launched, but she offers him a new mobile suit, the Zeong, which partially utilizes the Saikomu system of the Elmeth, similar to the Brabro, but it isn't 100% complete and no one has ever launched in it. Against a backdrop of constant explosions and fierce combat, Girin orders the launch of his newest, most powerful ship, the Dolos. He laughs to himself, convinced that Zeon's forces are overwhelming the opposition. Even when Federation reinforcements arrive, he insists that Zeon still has the advantage. By this time, Shar has launched in the Zeong, leading a division of mobile suits, but really on the lookout for the Gundam. Amuro can tell that it's Shar, but as they begin to fight each other, he reminds himself that his mission, landing on Abawaku, is more important than his rivalry. After he sets off, Shar continues to prowl the battlefield, looking for him. Back in the command center, Girin is pleased at the Dolos' performance in battle. Kaecilia asks him about the great Degwin, Sovereign Degwin's flagship, and he makes no effort to hide what happened. 
Their father, Sovereign Degwin, took the ship and tried to negotiate a peace. Nothing would have resulted from an ill-timed peace initiative, an unrepentant Girin tells Kaecilia, making clear that he fired the solar ray, knowing it would kill their father. Kaecilia shoots him in the back of the head. The stunned crew freeze. Kaecilia yells that even the Supreme Commander shouldn't get away with patricide. Anyone who disagrees is welcome to file charges after the battle. As they all stand, staring, they receive word that the Dolos fleet has been defeated, and the command center shakes as a nearby explosion opens cracks in the walls. The commander died honorably in battle, one crew member declares, before turning to Kaecilia for orders. Federation mobile suits manage to land on Abawaku. Kaecilia notes that the Xeon mobile suit pilots are not fighting well, and is informed that most of them are student recruits, fresh out of training. One such pilot, caught in the crossfire when Shar finally finds Amuro, screams for his mother before his Zaku explodes. The two continue to duel back and forth, slowly destroying each other's mobile suits as the larger battle plays out around them. When they fight in closer range, they are able to talk, just as Amuro and Lala were. Why did you get Lala involved? Lala was never meant to be a warrior. Shar, startled and angry, pushes the Gundam away. As he struggles, frustrated with the limited effect of his own new type abilities, Shar wonders how he can possibly beat Amuro. Alone in the cockpit of the Ziyong, he asks Lala to tell him what to do. After several bad hits, the white base is forced to cut engine power and crash land on Abawaku. The crew prepare for hand-to-hand -hand combat as Kai and Hayato run up to provide cover in their mobile suits. Amuro is able to take Shar by surprise, landing a direct hit on the Ziyong's torso. But unlike other mobile suits so far, that is not where the cockpit is! The head of the Ziyong ejects, taking Shar to safety while the rest of the MS explodes. With its lone gun, the Ziyong head destroys the head of the Gundam before flying away. In the command center of Abawaku, it is clear that the tide of battle has turned. Kaecilia makes arrangements for her own escape, and orders her lieutenant to surrender the base 15 minutes after she gets away. She promises to free him through a prisoner exchange, but it is crucial that she get away while Granada and the Xeon homeland still have some fighting strength left. Pursuing Shar into Abawaku, Amuro wonders why Shar fights against him. Clearly the Zabis are the real enemy. He sets the Gundam to a rudimentary autopilot before ejecting, and watching it walk down a hall before firing straight up a passageway. Fire is immediately returned, and the two mobile suits, finally, crippled by damage. Amuro can sense that the Zabi leader is nearby, but before he can pursue them, Shar confronts him. Amuro is still furious that Shar drew Lala into the war, but Shar counters that Amuro is misguided. Without the war, Lala's new type powers would never have developed. Shar advances on Amuro. New types like you are too dangerous now. I will kill you. The two begin firing at each other, moving through the low-gravity interior of Abawaku on jetpacks, until Amuro manages to hit Shar. Blood goes streaming and Shar retreats, with Amuro hot on his heels. The gun cannon and gun tank are too damaged to continue fighting, and Hayato and Kai eject to begin hand-to-hand -hand combat. Nearby, the G-Fighter crash lands, and Sela, sensing Shar, moves quickly and carefully into Abawaku to find him. The clash of swords greets her. In a strangely opulent room, Shar and Amuro continue their duel. Though she calls out to both, begging them to stop, they cannot hear her. In the same moment, each lands a dangerous blow. Amuro to the faceplate of Shar's helmet, which cracks before deflecting the blade, and Shar to Amuro's shoulder, where the blade goes straight through before breaking. 
the two crash into each other, and their minds connect in a stream of colored lights. Amuro says that Lala has told him something, that new types aren't meant to be tools for destroying each other. Shar responds that, in the battlefield, they are powerful weapons. That's just how it is. A blast knocks Sela into the two of them, breaking their connection. Sela begs them to stop fighting, to realize that they don't have to be enemies. Shar believes that once Leon is defeated, humanity will enter the age of new types. He hopes that Amuro can understand what he is trying to do, and that they won't have to be enemies. Another explosion rocks the base, and they are separated. Amuro launched down a hallway, and Sela slammed into a wall, rescued from another explosion by her brother. When she has recovered, Shar encourages her to escape and to go live a good life free from war. Amuro is calling you, he tells her, and he takes off his mask, replaces his helmet, and goes to settle the score with Kaecilia. He arrives in the hangar as they are counting down to take off, salutes the ship with a wry smile, and fires a bazooka, hitting Kaecilia square in the head. The constant explosions rocking Abawaku make it impossible to navigate. Sela and Amuro are stranded, unable to return to the white base. Amuro finally manages to return to the remnants of the Gundam, and may be able to escape, but he worries for Sela and the white base crew. Getting into the cockpit of the core fighter, with Lala's theme playing in the background, he wonders if he is about to join her. Suddenly he can hear her, and asks her what he should do. She reminds him that they can be together anytime. In his mind, he can see the White Base crew fighting for their lives as Zeon soldiers storm the White Base itself. With his new type powers, he calls out to them, guiding Sela to safety, telling Hayato and Kai when to retreat, telling Fra and the orphans when it will be safe to run, and warning Bright and Mirai that they will have to get the crew to escape pods and abandon the White Base. They are all safely away when the White Base erupts in a series of explosions and is completely destroyed. But where is Amuro? No one can hear him, even Sela and Mirai, with their own new type abilities. All of them are staring into the chaos and destruction of Abawaku, desperate for a sight or sound of their friend, when the orphans call out, A little to the right! Now straight! This way! You're almost outside! Three, two, one, zero! Amuro manages to escape and rejoin his friends. He cries with relief and tells Lala, I'm sorry. I still have a place to go home to, and nothing could make me happier. You understand, don't you? Universal Century 0080 After this battle, a peace treaty is concluded between the Earth Federation and the Republic of Xeon. This is our talkback for the final two episodes of Mobile Suit Gundam. Wow. <laughs> Space Fortress Abawaku and Escape. While we are briefly going to touch on how we feel about the end of the season, we're going to try to avoid talking about the season as a whole until our next episode, because that's kind of a big topic, you know, the whole structure, the whole story as one thing. This is going to focus on the events of these two episodes. And then next week, we will have some additional research that we wanted to get to <laughs> earlier and never seemed to quite fit or fit too well. A couple of the research topics are things that we could have talked about in almost any episode. <laughs> <laughs> 
We're also going to restrain ourselves from talking too much about the implications of what we find in these episodes that we will also save for future episodes. We're going to constrain ourselves as best as we can to just talking about these two episodes. <laughs> Coming into it blind, not knowing anything about the show except for what I'd seen so far, I was quite happy with the ending. But it is very difficult to say whether I would have been as happy if I hadn't already known <laughs> that there would at least be more Gundam after. Mm -hmm. We'll go into the ending in more detail and I'll talk a little bit more about why that is. But I would say my overall reaction to these last two episodes was strongly positive. They are really good. They're also, I think, especially Escape is kind of weird for a finale episode. And of course, we'll talk about that in good time. Viewing these two episodes as a single unit, as we're doing today, I think there is a progression through the course of the episodes from big picture and big ideas, grand strategy, diplomacy, the outcome of the war, the fate of the universal century. Then it gets smaller. It focuses on the battle, the tactics, all the ships, lots of mobile suits, lots of lasers, lots of beams, lots of missiles and torpedoes and all kinds of things going on. And then it gets even smaller and it becomes about dueling, individual fights. And then it gets even smaller than that. It becomes very personal and it becomes all about survival. So we're going to start where the show starts and we're going to talk about the big picture. This episode begins immediately where the last left off, actually with some overlap. <laughs> uh, we begin with the solar ray in all its power and horror. We get the death not just of Federation High Command, but also of Degwinzabi. And they do make an effort in this scene to show not just ships being destroyed, but human people. We see a lot of bodies yeah. go flying out of those ships. Because of the way they've chosen to animate this, it's very stark. It's all yellow and black. It's all yellow backgrounds and black line work. Things are sort of indistinct. There's a washed out feeling to all of it. It's often hard to tell what you're looking at, what you're seeing, until it resolves a little bit. And it's this process by which, both within the narrative and artistically, everything in the path of the solar ray is being reduced to space wreckage. And that ships and mobile suits and human bodies are all being treated the same. And the scale of the objects keeps changing. So it's never clear if you're seeing a tiny scrap of metal or a ship. That's true. I hadn't thought about that. But when you watch that scene, as it cuts between different things being destroyed, the scale changes significantly. Sometimes we're closer in and the bodies are the size of the ships in the last scene. And Girin even comments on this thing that you mentioned. He talks about the Federation forces being reduced to debris. There's a lot of contrast in these two episodes. We go from that really horrible, massive, almost incomprehensible wreckage, and it shifts to a very sort of impersonal feeling combat. I felt during the ship-to-ship -ship battles, you don't get a lot of that, oh, right, there are human people. What you do get is a sense of the massive scale mm -hmm. of this fight, of the number of people in an abstract sense, but the, the resources mobilized. Your screen is full of ball mobile suits. Your screen is full of missiles. The sense that like everything both sides have is here. The show starts doing that with the solar ray firing because 
the sheer amount of time that it spends there both increases the horror because it lingers and forces you to watch this awful thing for such a long period of time. But also you get these shots where it just pans across hundreds of ships that, are, that have been caught in the solar ray. And then once the battle starts, you get more of those pans where it just the camera just keeps going and there's just more and more and more ships. I was actually going to bring this up because I wanted to compare it to the Battle of Solomon, which when we watched the Battle of Solomon a few episodes back, you pointed out that you felt like the scale didn't work, that it didn't feel big and awesome. Do you feel like Abawaku rectifies that? Yes. More so with the solar ray than with the later scenes. And I suppose the, the distinction for me is less the massive scale. I think this episode does a much better job of conveying that massive scale. It does represent a strong shift away from earlier episodes where we have that sense of individual tragedy. It felt like early on they were constantly, every episode, gr every fight, grounding us reminding us, forcing us to confront, oh, were you enjoying that fight? There's a human in there. Oh, was that exciting? A person just died, like, over and over. And as the show has progressed, it's done less of that. Although later in these episodes, <laughs> they bring it back. In Escape in particular. In, in little ways, but in ways that I found very powerful. Agreed. Yeah, it's worth noting in these two episodes that after the solar ray scene, we don't see any Federation personnel except the white base crew. We see ships, we see mobile suits, but we don't see any people except the white base crew. And we only rarely hear them as well. And I think all of that goes to create a sense that I'll come back to later, but a sense of the war almost as a natural disaster, of the war being so big and so unstoppable and so beyond the influence of our characters that the individual characters begin to feel a little irrelevant to the outcome of the war. And I think that's the theme that these episodes hammer home and that we'll come back to again and again as we talk about different characters and different things that happen throughout the episodes. You look skeptical, and I am eager to prove this point. Oh, no, I think I think they definitely convey a sense of irrelevance <laughs> <laughs> of our main characters. I think there's also, from a storytelling perspective, this sense that because we are already invested in the white base crew, we don't need to see, hear, feel their suffering mm -hmm. in the same way that we need to see, hear, feel the suffering of Xeon soldiers to be reminded that, you know, while Giran is a monster, while the goals of the Xeon army are horrendous, there's also suffering of those human people that mm -hmm. and that their suffering also matters. Yeah, Nina alludes to the fact that in these episodes, when we do see those brief humanizing vignettes that show the human cost of what's going on, it is almost exclusively and indeed may be exclusively on the Xeon side. I think it is. I can think of three moments, mm -hmm. two of which involve unnamed characters. One, uh, two men in normal suits are on the outside of Abawaku, one of them saying to the other, Snap out of it. Don't die on me. Mm -hmm. Brief moments of unnamed. We don't even see their faces. We just see them outside of any sort of bigger machinery. Mm -hmm. Men contending with <laughs> the battle. And the final two, the first, Amuro takes out a Zaku pilot. And we'll discuss this a little more when we talk about the state of Zeon. But it's one of the 
few shots we've had in recent episodes where we actually zoom into the cockpit of a mobile suit that Amuro is fighting and mm-hmm. see the pilot's death. Mm-hmm. And he yells for his mother. Mm-hmm. That scene takes place directly after a conversation between Kaecilia and one of her subordinates, Twaning in which they discuss the fact that many of the pilots are student recruits who have not been properly trained. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that. Yeah, that's its own separate thing. More. But that conversation happens right before that Zaku pilot dies screaming for his mother. Yeah, the strong implication is that he is such a pilot. Yes. I would say the strong implication is that basically every pilot at Abawaku is such a pilot. Kaecilia observes that the state-of-the-art, top-of-the-line new mobile suits are not performing very well. And I can't imagine why they would have given those Gelgug units to student recruits if they had better pilots available. The other observation I wanted to make about that is I don't think Amuro kills that guy. I think Shar does. Amuro hits him with the shield and he tries to push him out of the way. But Shar is shooting his Zeong finger beams at the Gundam. And I think it's Shar who hits that Saku. The final one I thought of was Twaning, who Shar discovers dying in a corridor towards the end of the episode. We get very few interactions with Twaning. I didn't necessarily have a good impression of him, <laughs> but he, you know, he's a commander. He thinks he's maybe going to be able to get out of this okay, but he, there he is dying like any other soldier. The disintegration of the Xeon situation happens so quickly within the scope of the show. At first, everything seems to be going well. They seem to be defending well. And then everything seems to fall apart all at once. Our first impression of that situation is Giren somewhat exaggerating the effectiveness of the solar ray. <laughs> in a previous episode, he says that the solar ray can take out about a third of the Federation fleet based on the way they've positioned themselves. In his stirring speech to his men, he claims they have reduced the Federation forces by half. He also has this very highfalutin metaphor <laughs> involving how the solar ray represents the righteousness of their cause <laughs> and the light of Xeon spreading through the universe. He certainly knows how to give a bombastic speech. That by winning the war, they are in fact going to save humanity, ignoring for a moment that they started the war. <laughs> yeah, Giran does that a lot. He talks about how the war only proves the righteousness of their cause and humanity will destroy itself unless Zeon and the Zabis impose their dictatorship on the world, always ignoring the fact that he started the war in the first place. And then things do seem to be going well at Abawaku until the third fleet, the one they didn't destroy and the one they're not already fighting, arrives. <laughs> and that's their oh moment. You mm-hmm. can believe me there. I will. <laughs> uh, Even then, they still seem confident. But see, that's when a whole bunch of circumstances culminate all at once. I was shocked in these scenes by Giran's total misjudgment of Kaecilia. Mm-hmm. My impression previously had been that none of the Zabi siblings really trusted each other, except for maybe most of them trusting Dozel, because Dozel didn't seem to play politics, really. Mm-hmm. But that among the rest of them, nobody trusted each other. <laughs> And yet here he is so confident that he he basically admits to Kaecilia that he killed their father. I don't know if it's that he doesn't think she'll care. I don't know if it's that he doesn't think she's powerful enough to do anything about it or that he's safe because they're in the middle of the battle. 
I think Giren's a megalomaniac. <laughs> I think he probably thought of himself as invincible. And I imagine that since Giren didn't feel any affection for their father and had no compunctions about killing their father, he just assumed Kaecilia would not either. And yet in the Garma's funeral episode, we get an impression that Kaecilia does care about their father. And in this episode, that's confirmed because she has that moment where she's thinking to herself before she, uh, what's a good euphemism for shooting someone in the back of the head with a laser? Uh, before she helps Giran open his third eye, where she's thinking to herself and she thinks a man who would even go so far as to kill his own father. Like, that's not her performing for anyone. That's what she's actually thinking. She's not thinking, ah, my opportunity. She's thinking this man is a patricide and she has principles of a sort. <laughs> However, we've seen enough of Kaecilia that I can't help but think she is making the best of a situation she finds abhorrent. Someone being a patricide is a pretty understandable to society reason to kill them. And that's exactly what she does immediately after she kills him. She announces to the whole bridge, he killed our father. He killed Degwin Zabi, mm -hmm. the former sovereign. If you want to pull charges on me. <laughs> <laughs> Do so after the battle is done. Exactly. That she's really picked the perfect moment mm -hmm. to seize control. Because they need somebody in charge, right? Nobody on the bridge is going to want to take control for themselves. Right. There's a moment where it seems like her coup might not work, but then... The asteroid base takes a particularly hard hit, and that's what galvanizes everyone to accept Kaecilia as their commander. I love the moment when, this is at the very beginning, right after the solar ray, but Kaecilia's ship gets the news that the great Degwin, which is Degwin's flagship, and <laughs> if that doesn't tell you a lot about Degwin as a person... <laughs> But her ship gets the news, and so she hears about it, and she doesn't yet know for certain that Giran did this intentionally. But that's the moment when her mask goes up mm -hmm. immediately. Battle mode. Yeah, and it doesn't come back down again. It's at this point that Kaecilia asks one of her subordinates, why are our mobile suits doing so badly? So first we get the news that the pilots are all student recruits fresh out of quote-unquote training, <laughs> which we can only imagine was very brief. And, yeah. and fresh out of training means totally inexperienced. And then Kaecilia's underling reacts to her skepticism with, but their patriotism. <laughs> their spirit. They love Zeon so much. It's going to make up for the fact that they have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> Which rings hollow to uh -huh. us, as it surely must have in the ending days of World War II. And Kaecilia's response to that is sort of like, I have no doubt that their patriotic spirit is great. That does not affect the performance that I am currently observing on the battlefield. But this situation, the fact that they are sending very young, brand spanking new recruits into battle, in some ways undermines Kaecilia's stated purpose for leaving. As the battle turns, mm -hmm. she tells Twanning, I'm going to try to get out and get back while we still hold Granada and Xeon itself, mm -hmm. while we still have some resources left to fight. Mm -hmm. 15 minutes after I get away, surrender the base. And this is what I meant when I said he didn't make the greatest impression on me. His first <laughs> question is, well, what's going to happen to me? And she says, oh, well, we'll we will prisoner exchange you. Yeah. Don't worry about it. He's looking out for number one. <laughs> <laughs> but what sort of resources does she think they have at Granada or in Xeon if at this point they're sending... 
untrained young people into combat. Like, mm-hmm. What does she really think they're going to be able to accomplish? It's possible she thinks they'll be able to negotiate a less terrible surrender. It's possible she thinks they're going to be able to negotiate a surrender that leaves the Zabi clan, which at this point is her and Dozel's daughter, in power. Little Nineveh. And I feel like something along those lines happened in Japan <laughs> around World War II. There was some monarch who <laughs> remained in power. And then we have her death. Shar appears outside of the Zanzibar that she's leaving in, and he salutes, and at first she seems calm, but there's this moment <laughs> when I think she realizes, like, oh, he's not wearing the mask. He's not wearing the mask. <laughs> We're all he's going- gone full Kasval. He's going to kill us all. And then, and Tom noticed this, I didn't realize it at all. I think it's animated very quickly, and with everything else that's happening, it's very hard to see. But this is a particularly gruesome scene. It is extremely gory. Uh, if you slow it down, if you pause at various moments or take screen grabs, there's her rib cage. There's an arm or a leg that's been torn off. There's blood everywhere. It's like yeah. bits of her floating through the cockpit of this Zanzibar. Well, in that initial shot, the bazooka blast decapitates her. It goes through her head. Yes. Yeah. So I guess it's just little Minima. The last Zabi. Dun, dun, dun. Do you think Char is going to kill her too? Wait, no, we weren't going to speculate about the implications. No, but I wouldn't put it past him to kill babies. While we're talking about the deaths of zombies, <laughs> I do want to talk about the death of Girin, the specific mechanics of how that happens. First of all, quick lore note. Almost all of the weapons in Gundam are either beam weapons, which essentially fire Minofsky particles, or conventional weapons, which fire bullets. There are a very small number of, honest to goodness, laser weapons. And Kaecilia's sidearm is one of those. It looked like that. Yep. So that's just a fun little side note as we go through the lore. The other thing about it is how quickly Giran's body just becomes space debris. The force of the laser shot like knocks him out of his chair and then he just sort of bumps into a wall and drifts into the towards the ceiling. And he's reduced so quickly from this scheming, sneering supreme commander in his black and gold with his cane and his knee-high boots. He has this whole like very grandiose aesthetic. And then in just the blink of an eye, he makes one mistake. Well, one series of mistakes named Kaecilia. <laughs> he displays, as she puts it, a surprising naivete. And then he is just meat. He's just space meat. And she, from the time she enters this command center on a Bawaku, she has that gun by her side. We see her sitting on a sort of separate command chair off to one side and sort of like touching it next to her as she talks to Girin and tries to find out from him, oh, what was father's ship doing there? Did you borrow it? What's going on? (laughs) And he's finally like, oh, you know exactly what happened. I killed dad. Like, (laughs) duh. So she had considered the possibility that she would want to kill Garen before she arrived. (laughs) (laughs) And thus, the fall of the House of Zabi. I had one final note, actually, about the combat as Mm -hmm. a whole. This contributes a lot to the very end of the episode, but the other point that I thought was very interesting in the way the battle is animated, the way it's all depicted, 
is that as a Bawaku falls, it's just constant explosions everywhere. Here, there, outside, inside, one hall, another hall. It feels chaotic, and it feels like everyone is trapped, not just the Zeon soldiers trying to defend Abawaku, but everybody who infiltrated. There's this sense of it becoming a death trap for mm -hmm. everyone. Absolutely. And the explosions do a good job, I think, of emphasizing the danger and the disorientation. In a sense, almost, that it's... It doesn't quite feel like a victory. Yeah. Earlier I talked about the war becoming a natural disaster. The war has gotten out of the hands of any individual person or any person we recognize. And at this point, the explosions, the destruction of Abawaku has become its own thing. It's a monster unto itself. It's a storm. It's just happening. No one is causing these explosions. They're just happening, seemingly at random. And one triggers the next. Just a couple of quick points. I thought the animation quality in these episodes was as high as it's ever been throughout the course of the show. Agreed. Really, really good. There are also a ton of little details, like the burgers, like those vignettes, like, as gory as it is, the bits of Kaecilia. If you are watching frame by frame, you'll see a ton of interesting stuff, including in one of the initial pans that shows you just how many ships and mobile suits Xeon has, there's another Brabro there. And little details like that give you a sense for how much larger this story is than what we're actually seeing. There's probably another new type and maybe another lady scientist, or at least another science team operating that Brabro. There are all of these other stories happening around the Battle of Abawaku. Somewhere there is a Federation officer who was not expecting to be in command. Probably several, given what happened to High Command. Yeah. And before we move on from the battle, I do want to compare one more time Abawaku to Solomon, but specifically I want to compare Giran's approach to the defense of Abawaku to Dozel's defense of Solomon. Because early on, we get the sense that Giran has learned something from Dozel's mistakes. Because when the Federation uses that beam interference smoke that they used at Solomon, Giran orders the mobile suit forces to stay put. And one of the big mistakes in the Battle of Solomon was that Dozel ordered the mobile suits forward where they were vulnerable and destroyed by the Federation before the battle got to Solomon. But Giran doesn't do that. But then as we keep watching, we see that Giran, unlike Dozel, who knew all the capabilities of his forces, knew the names of his ships, knew the names of his officers, Giran just gives orders like, send half the ships from this place to this place. Giran's commands are much less nuanced. And Giran places overwhelming confidence and reliance on one very powerful ship, the Dolos supercarrier. He also has an actual, honest to God, drumming his fingers together, evil laugh, ah, we're doing so well moment. <laughs> but at the same time, we know he's overconfident. We know his information is not that good. He is surprised when Kaecilia shows up with fewer ships than he expected. He's surprised when another Federation fleet shows up, attacking a different part of the fortress. Giran consistently underestimates his opponents. He underestimates the Federation. He underestimates Kaecilia. And I think he overestimates his own strength and the strength of the forces that he possesses and the position he occupies. So we have followed the course of the battle and the fate of Xeon and in particular the Zabis all the way from the beginning, from the solar ray through to the explosions that consumed Abawaku. 
Let's rewind now back to the beginning and let's talk about the characters on the Federation side. And one of the things that the last episode of any show has to do if it wants to succeed is it has to give you some payoff. We've followed these characters for 43 episodes. We've seen them develop. We've seen their struggles. We've seen them bond and fall apart. And now we do get some payoff for all of those characters. The first one I'd like to talk about is Hayato. <laughs> oh, Hayato. This really starts with the implied and then explicitly stated romance between Hayato and Fra. Before they go into battle, Hayato makes a point of going and talking to Fra. And the way he leans in to talk to her feels very intimate and very close. And then moments later, as Amuro, Sela, and Kai are all headed to their mobile suits or, mm. or ships, uh, and the orphans are riding the same elevator, <laughs> Kai or Sela, I don't remember which one, asks, like, well, is Hayato coming? And they're like, he's stuck on Fra. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what I love about this is how, even though it's very subtle, I can imagine the entire thing. The moment I see Hayato go up to Fra, I'm like, of course, you can just picture the whole courtship in your head from, from him really being very vulnerable with her after he got injured and her commiserating with him and this shared sense of being left behind by Amuro and trying to find their place and a sense of value and a sense of worthiness in this environment. And of course they bonded. It feels yeah. right. And Lieutenant Bright playing matchmaker. Oh, Fra, I'm sure Hayato is lonely. You should go hang out with him a little bit. Hayato is a character who throughout the whole show has mostly developed in the background. Small scenes, without very much attention being paid to them, very little discussion of his feelings. Really only, only twice has Hayato <laughs> ever talked about his feelings. Once when he abandoned the white base back in episode 20, I think it was, and once when he was wounded and he was talking to Fra. And in both cases, what he primarily expressed was a sense of resentment towards Amuro. But this isn't the only bit of Hayato payoff we get in this episode, because for the very first time in the show, Hayato successfully destroys a mobile suit. Not just one, he gets two at once. Which on the one hand, you're like, yeah, Hayato, finally. And on the other hand, you're like, oh, we probably shouldn't be celebrating that he just killed those people. <laughs> yeah. Hayato is also completely left behind, as you mentioned before, that sense of resentment. Even when he was going into battle, there was this begrudging sense mm -hmm. to all of it. A sense of... Obligation. Yeah, resentment. and like he... As we talked about a lot earlier, you didn't have a feeling of cohesion. You didn't have a feeling that everyone was working together and in this together. Here we do. Here they all feel very much on the same page, working together. Down to the end when he and Kai are outside the white base. Fighting back to back with rifles. Yeah. Yeah. This really strong sense of everyone together. But that cohesion happens at the end. And I think at the beginning, before the battle, there's actually still a separation between Hayato and the other pilots. When Hayato was injured and he was talking to Fra about his feelings, one of the things he says is not just, I can't keep up with Amuro, but I have been left behind even by Kai and Sela. And at the beginning of the battle, we get the three pilots, the three aces, Amuro and Kai and Sela, in the elevator together, and Hayato's not there. 
And they share a moment together that feels very telling about how similar these three are and how closely they've bonded because of their similarities and because of the war and because of all being ace pilots together. And they have this moment, Amro has just raised everyone's spirits. Things were very tense. It's a bad situation. And he says, I've had a new type of premonition. We're going to be okay. We're going to win this battle. And in the elevator afterwards, when it's just the pilots together, Sela asks. I think Kai asks. I, yeah, Kai asks. Were you telling the truth back there? And Amaro says, no. Sayla's like, yeah, if he had told the truth, everyone would have abandoned ship. They needed something. And the three of them have this moment. Like, none of them are going to abandon ship at this point. Each of them at, the, at some point in the past has struggled with whether or not they really want to be on the white base and has ultimately decided that they do. Right. Amaro abandoned the ship. Kai briefly abandoned the ship back in Dublin. Sayla never quite abandoned ship, but there was that time when she stole the Gundam. And throughout her interactions with Shar, there's clearly been an internal conflict about whether or not she belongs on the white base. And ultimately, she decided that she does. Each of them has faced that choice and decided to stay. So has Hayato, for that matter. It's true, he has. But I do think this scene in the elevator reinforces the feeling of separation between these three and Hayato. And by the end, after Hayato has fought in this last battle and performed quite well, that feeling is gone. And in if you can cast your mind back to the very first couple of episodes, especially episode three, Kai and Hayato were a duo. They piloted the gun tank together. They worked together. Like they were buddies. They were essentially one unit narratively. And then once Kai got the gun cannon and Hayato and Ryu were paired on the gun tank, they've sort of separated. And we haven't seen them together in quite the same way until this last episode, until the very end, when all the machines have been destroyed and they are back to back with their rifles holding off Xeon soldiers in the ruins of the white base and their mobile suits. And I think it's that Hayato's success in battle has at last bridged that divide, or at least given Hayato the confidence. I don't know. <laughs> I agree with you that Hayato is in some ways separate from the group and that that is sort of further emphasized by that moment when he's with Frabo while the rest of them are heading to their ships. Previously, the vibe was separation because there was a sense of competitiveness. <laughs> now it feels like the natural differentiation between groups of friends in a shared environment, I guess, mm -hmm. is how it feels to me. I see what you mean. Uh, we also see Fra very calm and confident. We get very little Bright or Mirai. And then we get tons of character payoff for Amuro. At one point in this episode, I just looked over at Tom and said, Amuro has grown up. <laughs> Things like his nice interaction with Fra. He kind of like chucks her on the side of the helmet <laughs> when he says bye to her. And they both sort of exhort each other to to fight hard, but also not to, to give in, right? Mm -hmm. To not give in to despair or to think about this like it's their final battle. Mm -hmm. He appears to have a moment of jealousy when Hayato goes over to Fra, but he checks it. Yeah, it passes quickly, which is better than if he didn't have it at all from a character development standpoint. Yes. Because we know he's realized what's gone on there. He's had a feeling and Amuro having feelings is <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty important, but he's dealt with that feeling in a mature way. The white lie that he tells to the crew, saying that it's his new type intuition, even though that's not, <laughs> that they're going to succeed. Mm -hmm. He's recognized other people's emotional needs and mm -hmm. attempted to do something to help them. And it's a recognition that even though he is the ace, even though he is the pilot of the Gundam, it's that's not enough. He can't do it alone. He needs all of them to be able to fight too. 
During the battle itself, we have his first confrontation with Shar, and the moment where he says, wait, infiltrating Abawaku is more important yeah. than my fight with Shar. Yeah. Shar is not my true enemy. Mm-hmm. My true enemy is in the base, which is such a 180 from him risking his life to do atmospheric re-entry to try to take out Shar's dudes <laughs> and going into battle frenzies and attacking stuff he hasn't been told to attack. And it's a development that puts Amuro ahead of Shar because Shar can't do that. Shar spends the whole battle chasing the Gundam around the battlefield. And settling personal scores. There's a quote that Tom and I love from one of Sir Terry Pratchett's books and it's attributed to Captain Carrot and it's presented as an ideal but something that is next to impossible for most people to live by or to do. And it's that personal is not the same as important. And Amuro has had that moment. Amuro has had that realization that what he has with Shar is personal, but that doesn't make it important. Mm-hmm. We have a sense that Amuro's abilities have grown as well. There's the moment immediately after the solar ray where he says, they're not all dead, but. Which hammers home for us how devastating it's been, but also that he can feel them, mm-hmm. which is both horrifying and amazing. Mm-hmm. He's felt all those people die, but he feels the people who are still alive which is a massive change from his previous abilities. Towards the end, when he has this realization that like, oh, I might die here, he saves everyone else before he saves himself. We have this scene that combines pointing out to us that his abilities have expanded greatly and that he's come to really value these relationships in a way that he didn't before. You know, people have tried to deal with his lack of social connection with varying degrees of success. (laughs) And here we see that he finally has it. Mm -hmm. He values these people. He values his connection to them so much so that he's willing to risk his own life to save them if he can. It also shows him putting into practice what he He's been saying by using his new type abilities not for battle, not to fight better, not to kill people, but purely to save people. We also get a lot of really good payoff for Sela in these episodes, but to talk about that, we also have to talk about the duel between Amro and Shar. And here, the focus of the episode continues to narrow. We've gone from the big picture to the battle, and now we move beyond the battle to just a fight between Shar and Amro, first in mobile suits and then hand to hand. Two important points going into that. We get essential confirmation of some kind of something between Amro and Sela. At one point, Shar says to Sela, you know, go, Amuro is calling you. (laughs) And when Amuro is thinking about the people he wants to save, he thinks of the white base and then he thinks of Sela separately. So there's there's something (laughs) going on there. Uh, Also, how much of (laughs) Shar and Amuro's relationship has been mediated by women? (laughs) First Lala and now Sela. Yeah. Just putting that out there. Yeah. In that duel, there is a scene where Sela is literally thrown in between Shar and Amuro. Possibly to everyone's detriment, I think. Possibly, yeah. Even before we get to the duel, Amuro confronts Shar with, like, why did you get Lala involved? She was never meant to be a soldier. And we start to see Lala become the medium through which the two of them express their different ideas about new types and new types in society. Because Amuro expands on that idea later to say, we, as in new types, were not meant to be weapons to kill each other. And the way he expresses that even goes a little bit further, because what he says is, Lala told me new types aren't meant to be weapons for killing each other. 
versus Shar's attitude of, if not for the war, she wouldn't have awakened as a new type, which is an idea that he's expressed previously, that war creates new types. And he points out that Amuro's new type abilities likely awakened because of Amuro's conflict with Lala. So for Shar, war and combat is what allows the individual new type to reach their apex. He also feels that given those abilities, given that power, being used as a weapon of war is just the way it is. Like, that's just the world, and that there isn't really anything to be done about it. He also tells Amuro, new types like you are dangerous, which I wondered about because... Is he expressing a sense that any new types that don't fall in line with Shar's plan are dangerous? Or all new types who are Amuro's level of powerful <laughs> are dangerous? It's unclear precisely what he means. He says flat out the age of new types. He believes the new types are the future of humanity. Mm -hmm. So when he feels like the specific new type, Amuro, is dangerous, what does that mean? Well, he says to Amuro in that scene, he says... If I can't accept you as my rival, as my enemy, then I have to kill you now while I have the chance. But he also does say, join me, if you could just see things from my perspective. And I think the implication there is, if so, I wouldn't have to kill you. You wouldn't be dangerous if you were on my side. Mm -hmm. If you were, like me, a new type supremacist, then, then we could be friends, the best of friends. <laughs> they wind up having a sword fight. The duel starts while the battle is still ongoing and they're chasing each other around the battlefield. Yes. Which has a long history in epic literature. Mm. I'm not so sure about classics of Japanese epic literature like Tale of the Heike, but in Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which is a classic Chinese epic in the Iliad, which is the classic Greek epic, this is really at the level of a trope where two great warriors will be stalking each other around the battlefield, first one fleeing, then the other, first one pursuing, then the other. There will be the intervention of various other powerful forces. And of course, lots of underlings and unnamed soldiers who get in the way and allow one or the other hero to demonstrate their prowess. And best friends and lovers. And then throughout the course of this, the Gundam and Shar's mobile suit, the Ziong, are progressively damaged throughout the combat. Arms are blown off, then heads, or in the Ziong's case, the body is destroyed and the head goes flying independently. Because it turns out that in the Ziong and only the Ziong, the cockpit is in the head. The Ziong is such a goofy mobile suit. It really is. <laughs> but it's true, both mobile suits essentially disintegrate mm -hmm. <laughs> over the course of this battle until by the end, neither is left. Mm -hmm. I found it particularly interesting that they put Char in a mobile suit named for Zeon. Mm -hmm. He effectively destroys the entire mobile suit by the end. Mm -hmm. He also effectively destroys Zeon by the end. Yep. There is a recurring visual theme in these episodes of decapitations. The Gundam's head is destroyed. The Zeong's head is separated from its body. Giran is shot through the head. Kaecilia has her head blown off by a rocket. Yeah. And I think what's going on there is that what is happening in this episode really is the decapitation of Zeon. And not even just Zeon in some respects. We also lost Federation High Command. Mm -hmm. So the, the loss of this old leadership. Mm-hmm. So they fight their way into Abawaku. Amuro sets the Gundam to a rudimentary autopilot and leaves it. And that is when they transition into fighting hand to hand. And he actually manages to shoot Shar first. We see the blood. 
And these are some really cool scenes of hand-to-hand combat, but in zero gravity with jetpacks mm-hmm. by a couple of space noids who are intimately familiar with maneuvering in those environments. So first the gun battle, and then when they're having a rapier duel, but in three <laughs> dimensions, it's really cool. Our swordplay consultant, Sean Michael Chin, would probably quibble that these are not actually rapiers. I think they are probably small swords. (laughs) What they are doing on the base, I have no (laughs) idea. Although they are having the fight in a room that looks like a formal parlor or like a formal room of some kind. So maybe they were decorative. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe people do a lot of sword dueling in Xeon. It seems like the sort of thing they would revive culturally. (laughs) Amuro wonders to himself why Shar doesn't realize that the Zabis are the number one enemy anymore. Mm-hmm. And we know that they're not. We know that they have ceased to be Shar's number one priority. We're still not totally clear what he thinks he's going to accomplish now. <laughs> and he does not enlighten us. <laughs> right after the Zeong's head has been destroyed, we get a shot of Amuro doing like a hero pose. <laughs> Shar is nowhere to be seen. Amuro maybe doesn't know where Shar is. But Amuro says something about how he can sense that the leader of the Zabi family is nearby and he believes he has the power to go and take her out. So at this point, Amuro's intention is to do what had been Shar's goal throughout almost the whole series and complete the eradication of the Zabi clan. And it's Shar who stops him. One thing I was a little bit incredulous about in this fight, and it's a little silly to begin with, but they sort of hang a lampshade on, oh, do you know why I lured you in here to fight <laughs> with swords? And Amuro's like, yeah, you must think, you know, new types have to learn physical skills just like anyone else, da 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 And while Char may be more familiar with fencing than Amuro is, I don't see why a new type's enhanced intuition, enhanced senses wouldn't still give them an advantage (laughs) in physical skills. And we can see that they do. Because during the duel, when each makes their final thrust, Amuro gets the flash. Amuro's is also much uh, closer to a killing strike. Yeah. Because Char catches Amuro in the right shoulder. Mm -hmm. So it's not even on the correct side if he was going for Amuro's heart. Amuro catches right in Char's faceplate and cracks it. And if it had gone through one of Char's eyes, it probably would have killed him. Yeah. And Char says that later on. If I hadn't been wearing this helmet, I would be dead. And then they crash into each other and their foreheads touch and we get a big spark of light. We see them in the sparkly space place. (laughs) We see Lala briefly. We also flash out and we see their bodies silhouetted. And the way that the silhouettes are drawn, it almost looks as if they have each stabbed each other through the body. Like the where the Mm. swords are in those silhouettes makes it look as if they have both killed each other. And they have a bit of a conversation here in their minds. And this is why I say it might have been better if Sela hadn't crashed into them and broken this up. Amuro and Lala were implacable enemies before they had their mind conversation. And by the end of it, they understood each other. And they didn't really want to fight each other anymore, but circumstances being what they were. And it wasn't all one way, right? It wasn't just her understanding Amuro. It wasn't just Amuro understanding her. It was a mutual compromising kind of understanding. And would Shar and Amuro have been able to achieve that if they'd spent a little more time in that place Hmm. and a little more more time together there mm-hmm. than they were able to. I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe Shar is too single-minded for that to happen. 
It's important to note here that Char does not seem very broken up about Lala's death at this point. Amuro seems very upset about it. To continue to grieve. Although Char still has a moment in the earlier part of the combat where he says to himself, Lala, tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. That's when he's really struggling to tap into the Zeong's Saikamu and its new type specific weaponry. And it may be that Shar is looking to Lala or to the idea of Lala as his spirit guide. There's a strong sense in these episodes that Amuro knew Lala and was listening to Lala while Shar was imposing his own ideas and projecting his own conceptions of new types onto Lala. And Lala was, during most of their relationship, happy to make herself a blank slate onto which Shar could project those ideas. But, as Nina said, their moment of communion is broken up. Sela has come looking for them. And Shar says to Sela what he's basically been saying to Sela since the beginning, although he does so with considerably more kindness <laughs> this time, but that for all that he has accepted the necessity of war in his life, he doesn't want it to be her life. Mm -hmm. He wants her to be happy somewhere. He wants her to live in peace. He appears to see no contradiction in the fact that he wants to lead like violent rebellion, <laughs> which will undoubtedly affect her. Right. Because it will affect all of humanity. And even though he seems to believe that for new types, battle is the thing that allows them to achieve apotheosis, he doesn't want that for Sela. Define apotheosis quick. Apotheosis is the culmination, achievement of the highest point of one's development. It comes from Greek for to become a god. Right before this conversation with Sela, Shar removes his mask. Or no, does he have it off when he fights Amuro? No, he, re he removes it because he's bleeding so much from the wound Amuro gave him. He removes it during his conversation with the dying Twaning. Yes, which is when he finds out that Kaecilia is leaving and rushes. If you can't, <laughs> can't take out Amuro, he's going to at least take some zombies down. I thought he was just going to say goodbye. <laughs> But it does feel important that at this last moment, the mask has fallen away. Mm -hmm. No more mask. Yeah. There is an interpretation of this that with the removal of the mask, he is leaving Shar Aznable dead at Abawaku. He is returning to the identity of Kasval Dekun, and he is returning to Kasval's quest to destroy the Zabis and get revenge. Kasval is also a much safer person to be at this point if he has judged correctly that the battle's not going well for Zeon mm -hmm. and that Zeon has lost the war. You know, Kasval's father was killed before the war began. Kasval grew up in exile. Yep. Coswell does not have any particular association to the current regime. <laughs> we do not see Shar again after his assassination of Kaecilia. Mm -hmm. So we don't know if he gets out alive. We don't know what he does after the war. I missed talking about this earlier, but now is a good opportunity to bring it up again. This scene really emphasizes the total irrelevance of our main characters to the battle as a whole. Because here, Char has raced through the collapsing Abawaku fortress to get to Kaecilia's ship before it leaves and she escapes so that he can assassinate her. And he does so. But the Zanzibar is destroyed a second later, the moment it leaves the protection of its hangar, because Abawaku is already falling and they are surrounded by Federation warships. Kaecilia would not have been able to escape regardless of what Shar did there. But he got the personal satisfaction Absolutely. <laughs> of sending her to join Garma. Absolutely. This is a very personal episode, and their impact on the larger war is no longer important. Could Shar or Amuro have changed the course of this battle? I don't think they could have. 
earlier you had wanted to address Shar's parting words as he kills Kaecilia. Yes, because the last thing that Shar says before he fires that bazooka is, here's a goodbye gift, Garma. You'll get along well with your sister. And up until now, we have had no reason to think that Shar was still thinking about Garma. True. And I think this just goes to reinforce the idea that we had back in those early episodes when Garma first appeared and we saw Shar and Garma interacting. Shar and Garma were actually friends. Shar actually liked Garma. Not enough to spare Garma. Maybe not even enough to feel bad about it, but enough to remember him. So you Sharma shippers out there <laughs> have some more ammunition. Thank you for listening to the first part of episode 1.34, Parting Shots. Part two will begin right where this one ended. Make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSB Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast, on Instagram at Gundam Podcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Thank you.